I want to start today in the, ses- in the sermon portion by asking you to think about a time when you had really great service. Maybe you went to a restaurant, maybe you had uh, somebody take care of your yard or something, and it was just exceptional, and you thought, wow, that was phenomenal service. But what else did you do with that really, really great service experience? Did you tell anybody? Did you tell everybody? (laughs) Did you leave a big tip, maybe? Or uh, leave a review on social media or on Google or on someplace to let other people know, strangers know, that you had really great service. I remember, and this is remarkable because it was over 20 years ago, but I remember one time when Heather and I were in college, we went to Red Lobster, and we had a guy named Cowboy, and he was our waiter. And I still remember his name 20 years later because he was phenomenal. Like, we were sharing one side of the booth because that's what we were doing at that time in the world. And he sat down in the other side, and he sat down, and he's like, hey, how you guys doing? My name is Cowboy, and I'm going to be taking care of you. I'm going to take really, really great care of you today. And then he launched in, told us a little bit about himself, asked us a few questions, took our order. Everything was perfect. Our drinks never got more than halfway down. He was around filling them up or getting us a second Coke or whatever it was that we uh, we're doing it. Just, everything was perfect. And man, Cowboy got a great tip. And uh, we told everybody, like, go to Red Lobster. Ask for Cowboy. You want to be in his section. It makes the whole evening better, right? Now, we weren't on a, a frequent flyer program at that point with dinners out. We were not, we didn't have a whole lot of money or anything. So it was like six months before we made it back and Cowboy had moved. And we were sad. Like, we were really sad. Because, you know, it just, I'm sure the service was okay, but we don't remember the next waiter's name. (laughs) We don't remember any other waiter's name that we've ever had because the service made such an impact. And so now, you know, with that in mind, think about a time when you had bad service. Think about a time when the service was slow, when the waiter was rude, when the drinks got empty. Did you tell anybody? Did you tell everybody? Did you go back? What about the tip? Did you leave a tip at all? Did you leave a bad tip? Did you leave a few coins? Side note, time out. If you pray for your meal, you are obligated to leave a 20% tip. That's just my rule of thumb. Like Once you go on record, it's like putting the fish on the back of your truck or the back of your car. You can't cut people off in traffic once you put the fish on, even if they have it coming. You can't, you can't send any hand signals. You can't do anything. Once you put the fish on the back, and the same is true if you pray for your meal and you go on record, hey, we're Christians, you can't stiff them on the tip. You got to give a nice tip, right? And then if it's really good, you got to go above and beyond. So just think about that. If the service is off to a bad, you might just pray quietly to yourself. But, but when you have that bad service, did you go back? Or did you think twice about it? Or have you ever gone back and said, please don't put me in so-and-so? Do you have anybody, the service was bad enough that you remembered the server's name and you asked not to be seated in their section? It's possible. What about average service? Maybe you went back, maybe you didn't. But you probably didn't tell anybody about average service, did you? Probably didn't leave a review for average service. In fact, psychologists have noticed that we have a negativity bias, and so we are about twice as likely to leave a negative review is a positive review because if it's okay, you know, we almost feel a little entitled to, to good service or to good 
process or good uh, performance by a product, but if it's bad, we're twice as likely to leave a negative review as a positive review. And that's interesting, and I I think that will come into play as we continue our series titled Loving Like Jesus. We're coming down the home stretch. We're in week four of a five-week series. We started off uh, looking at loving like Joseph, and then we looked at loving our enemies. Last week, we looked at learning from Jesus. And this big idea last week was that if we're truly learning from Jesus, that's going to result in living like Jesus which is an extension of loving like Jesus, because Jesus was love in human form. And so today we continue this theme, and we're going to look at serving like Jesus. Serving like Jesus, very important subject. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 20, uh, focusing particularly on verse 25 through 28. If you want to turn there in one of our blue hardcover Bibles in the room, you can pick one of those up and go to page 1531. If you're joining us online, again, we're always so glad that you found us and you're worshiping with us. Uh, The screen will have the scriptures, but I always encourage people to have a Bible open with them and be reading it right in front of you. And this one hits home for us because one of our core values at Linwood is caring for each other. Like, we only have three of those core values, and so these are like our top three values, things that we value as a congregation, as a family of God, and we define caring for each other as willingly being the hands and feet of Christ, willingly choosing to be the hands and feet of Christ to meet the needs of others both within our congregation and in the world around us. So it's not just in here, it's also out there. It's not just within these four walls, it's also on the outside of these four walls that we would willingly choose to be the hands and feet of Christ to meet the needs of others, both within our congregation and in the world around us. And so, kind of going back to our introduction, what if the church, and what if Linwood in particular, was known throughout the community for for its excellent service? What if the the Christian church, the capital C church, in all of its various forms, in all of its various denominations and non-denominational churches, what if when people thought of the church, the, immediate, the thing that immediately came is those people serve well. They serve incredibly well. And what if employers said, man, the Christians, they, they go above and beyond. I want more of them. And, and guys said, I want my daughter to marry one of those Christians. Even if I don't believe what they believe, I see how they serve one another. I see how they meet one another's needs. What if, what if mom said, I want my sons to marry Christian girls, even if I'm not quite so sure about the whole Jesus thing? What if we were so known for excellent service, serving the world, serving one another? We definitely don't want to be known for bad service, right? Because people are twice as likely to share a bad experience or review a bad experience or comment on a bad experience than they are a positive one. So we certainly don't want to be known for bad service where people will tell everyone, but we can't settle for average either. Because our response to average service is kind of a shoulder shrug. Maybe I'll go back, maybe I won't. It doesn't draw people back the way that excellent service does. It doesn't draw people into a relationship with God the way that serving, meeting needs with excellence will do. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're going to see Jesus talking about the importance of serving one another, of serving, and the model that he set for us. But it's an interesting chapter. As you see kind of the overall arc of the chapter, it begins with one of Jesus' famous parables, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. 
And the parable of the workers in the vineyard talks about a guy that goes out at the beginning of the day and he hires day laborers to work in his vineyard. And then he goes back a few hours later and he sees some more people standing around, so he puts them to work too. And even this happens several times throughout the day, even to the last hour of the day. And he goes and he hires them and he brings them in. And when it's time to receive payment, he starts with those that got there first, or that got there last. So they came with, just worked an hour. And he pays them a full day's wage. And then on down, so the people that got there earlier are thinking, man, we're going to get double or triple, right? And they all get paid the same. And if you're doing the Banding Together journal, you read this recently. You read this in the last week or so. And, and it stands out, and you think, well, where would I be? How would I respond? And see, one of the principles behind all that is that everyone needed the same. If you were a day laborer, you needed a denarius in order to feed your family. You, the need was the same, and so, so those that came last still got what they needed, and those that came first got what they needed. Jesus meeting needs and giving this parable of the kingdom as that God meets the needs that each of us has. And then it moves on, and Jesus predicts his death and resurrection right after that, and in another installment of missing, Adventures in Missing the Point, right after Jesus proclaims that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be turned over to sinners and be crucified on their behalf and then raised from the dead, the response that he gets is that James and John, their mom, comes and says, hey, Jesus, i got a favor to ask for you. I know you're going to go and die for me, and you're going to conquer sin and death for the whole world, for all people in all times, but i got a, I got a pressing need. And that pressing need was that James and John would be seated at his right hand and his left. That's what I'm talking about. It adventures in missing the point. Like, they totally missed it. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. In verse 24, we find out that the disciples were, were indignant over this. They heard about it. And one, one pastor I was watching preaching on this one time, he said, you know, I think they were indignant because they're like, dang it, I wish we would have thought of that. I wish we would have thought of that request, right? But they're upset, and there's this pecking order. that There's some that are wanting to be up at the top. And they're pushing their way forward. And that's where Jesus comes in, verse 25 through 28. And here's what he says. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if we look at this passage, we see early on in verse 25, Jesus acknowledging humanity has an innate hunger for power, for authority, for control. Most of us will deal with that in one way or another. Sometimes it's overt power over other people. Sometimes it's just control over our environment. But most, of, most people have a desire for that. They have a desire to control their environment and to even control others. And those that really want to get to the top will be willing to step on other people to get there. And so he acknowledges this and he says there's a deep desire to want to be served and to really like good service and even feel entitled to it. And oftentimes, a good church, someone will describe as one that meets my needs. They have programs that I need or that I want. They have services that I need or that I want. And so the church is good because it meets the needs. And that's a great place to start, but it's a terrible place to finish. 
It's a great place to start in coming to a church, but it's, it's a terrible place to finish, to just settle in and say, well, this is wonderful. This church meets all my needs. Because there was a bigger picture. And so Jesus gets to that in verse 26 and 27. And not so with you. He was creating a countercultural movement. A movement that didn't just blend in with the world and do things the way the world does it, but a, a, one has often called it the upside-down kingdom. And I, I don't like that phrase. I think the kingdom's right-side up and this world is upside-down. It's an upside-down world and the kingdom, and Jesus is pointing out, the kingdom operates very differently than the world. And He's calling them to be leaders in the kingdom. To be followers of His, disciples of His, learners of His. And so He says, not so with you. Instead, contradictory statement, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You want to get to the top, it starts with service. And whoever wants to be first, if you want to just not be in the top, but to be first, first among equals, must be your slave. He turns the world's definition of greatness on its head. The world's definition says the more people you have serving you, the greater you are. But Jesus says in the kingdom, it's very, very different. In the kingdom, the greatest among you, the first, is essentially a slave to everyone, is serving the most people. So this is very, very different. This is a very, very different teaching in a very, very different countercultural way of life. And so when he says to serve, the word that he uses as a servant is one who meets the needs of another. That's what service is. And so when our core value talks about willingly meeting the needs of others, both within our congregation and the world, that, that, that's something we highly value, is caring for each other inside the church and outside the church. When he goes to the next level and says not just greatness, but to be first, would be a slave. That word slave is a Greek word, doulos. And it's translated as bond servant, somebody that a price has been paid, and you are now literally the property of another. These were the lowest. These were not hired out as day wages. These were people who belonged to, were the property of another. And they often had the lowest, most debased service that they would provide. And it's interesting, I was studying these words and, and studying how, how this all fits together, and there was a comment in, in one of the resources that I used that says, ironically, Dulos, that Greek word we translate as bond slave or bond servant, is used with the highest dignity in the New Testament, namely of believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. Do you see what he's saying here? And you see how the New Testament uses this with the highest regard, with the highest dignity. Paul, the great apostle Paul who planted all these churches and went all over the place, he introduced himself in most of his letters as a slave of Christ, as a doulos of Christ, one who had willingly turned his life over to Jesus. And Jesus now called all the shots. He was the property of another. And he encourages us to be the same and to do the same. And so as he sets the world's definition of success on its head, he drives this point home even stronger that it's not just serving, but if you want to be first, if you want to be the best in the kingdom of God, you will be a slave to Christ and to those that He calls you to serve. And He 
wraps this all up in verse 28 by pointing to himself and saying, you know, even the Son of Man, if there was ever anybody who had a right to say, serve me, it was the Son of Man. It was Jesus himself. It was God himself. God in a bod, walking around. Okay, this is heaven coming to earth. And he says, if there was ever, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Not, didn't come to have people meet his needs, but came to meet the needs of others and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not only to serve, but also to suffer. And lots of commentators have pointed to this, that, that so many people at the time Jesus came to, to Israel, they were expecting a conquering king. They got a suffering servant. They were expecting the guy that you want to be on his right or his left. Because you're at the top now and people are serving you. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm coming not only to serve, but to suffer. Not only to serve, but to give my life as a ransom. A ransom is what is paid to redeem another. And Luke also records this interaction, this conversation in Luke 22, verse 27. And Jesus sort of clarifies and drives home his point there. He says, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I'm the greatest of all time. You know, we like to talk about who's the goat, right? Last week I talked about Michael Phelps. Pretty solid foundation to say Michael Phelps is the greatest swimmer of all time. He's the goat, G-O-A-T. And we like to throw that around, and some people are, are mistaken that LeBron James is the greatest of all time when it's really Michael Jordan, and so you get these big debates, right? But Jesus was hands down the greatest of all time. Nobody could make that claim. And he said, even though I'm the greatest, I am among you. The ones that should be serving me, I am among you as one who serves. And there's one more passage that I believe really drives this point home, and it's John 13, and if you want to turn there, you can. It's also going to be on the screens behind me. But this brought tears to my eyes as I was studying this week and preparing for this message because of what verse 1 says. In John 13, verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And some of you may know what Jesus did next. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That was the full extent of his love. That was the full extent of who he was and what he was here to do. And he takes off his outer garment, he takes off his cloak, and takes the form of a servant, takes the form of the lowest of servants. In fact, the Old Testament law would say that you couldn't have a Hebrew slave assigned to washing feet because it could make them unclean. 
Because they didn't wear shoes like we wear shoes. They didn't have sewer systems that were buried six or eight or 12 feet underground like we have. They wore sandals. There was dust and there was sewage and there was all kinds of horrible things that would collect to your feet as you moved around throughout the day. And when you came and got your feet washed, it was very refreshing to get all of that off and to, to have your feet clean now as you sat and reclined around the table, which the tables were lower, and so your feet were closer to the food, and and several other things that made this a really significant part of Jewish culture. And so when Jesus decides to show them the full extent of his love, it is not through a miracle, it is not through a healing, it is not through one more teaching, and he doesn't load up a bunch of money and give it to them. That's not the gifts that he gave to show them the full extent of his love. It was to serve them. It was to take the form of a servant and humbly serve them. The greatest of all time left the table to serve the servants. And I love that Judas is mentioned in this passage as well. Even the one that had already decided to betray him, even the one that in just a few hours would sort of seal the death sentence for Jesus, he was seated around the table. And Jesus washed his feet. He loved his enemy, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He served even his enemy. And he did so on the night of his betrayal and the eve of of his death. And he didn't just serve him, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life, we're told, to buy back, to redeem what was stolen, what was held captive by another. And those that are enslaved to sin, those that are enslaved to addiction, Jesus paid the penalty to buy that back. He paid the ransom. And it's the greatest act of love in the history of the world. And we see All of this wrapped up in this passage. And so our bottom line today is a twist on another phrase that I've heard before, but it really, I believe, is absolutely true. Our bottom line today is that you can serve without loving, but you cannot truly love without serving. You can serve without loving, without having agape love in your heart. And a lot of us do this for employers I happen to love my employer. It's Jesus. I know the checks come from Linwood Church, but I get the the blessing of absolutely loving my employer. And there are passages in the New Testament that tell us things like, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it in service to Him. So even if you don't love your employer, you can serve them, right? You can serve an employer without loving them if the price is right. You can serve clients and strangers and etc. without loving them. You can do religion even without love in your heart. And you can serve God without loving God. You can serve God to do things in order to get the benefits that are promised to you through that. And there are people engaged in religion all over the world that are doing things for God that they don't love but they're afraid of and so they don't want to get zapped and so they they serve. But I would say you, you cannot serve, I'm sorry, you cannot love without serving. And it's important to understand the difference between loving and really, really liking. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well. I think you can really, really like without serving. You can really, really like a church or in a marriage 
or an employer or whatever and not truly serve. But love, love, agape love means self-sacrificing surrender. It means that you put yourself second or third or fourth and you make a sacrifice of yourself in surrender to another. And so maybe you've heard the JOY acronym, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. And that joy flows out of that arrangement. When we put Jesus first and we serve Him first and foremost with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love Him like that, and then we serve the others that He puts in front of us, and we serve them, there's great joy. Like the positive feelings that sometimes get mixed up with happiness. There's great joy available to us when we put Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. But when we put ourselves first and put Jesus under us and think He's there to meet our needs and others are way down the list, that is not a recipe for joy. That's a recipe for unmet expectations. That's a recipe for despair. And I'm, I'm hesitant sometimes to re- preach a message like this because in over 10 years of ministry, the formula that I often see when you preach a message like this and you challenge people to serve like Jesus is the people that are already doing a lot find a way to do a little bit more. And a lot of the people that aren't doing anything just go to lunch. And maybe one or two will poke their head up and say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll serve here or I'll serve there. Out of, almost like that's out of guilt. And I don't want it to ever be out of guilt. There's no shame. There's no guilt. That's not really how we work. If the Spirit is convicting you and saying, you know, it's really time to get back in the game. It's time to serve. It's time to serve more often. It's time to serve like I was before. Then yes, by all means, move forward. But there was another passage in Matthew chapter 9 that stood out to me a couple of weeks ago. And it says this, it says, he says to his disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the people that are always do, already doing stuff, right? And God kind of whispered in my ear and he said, pay attention to this, Mark. Pay attention to this. Because he doesn't tell the people that are already doing something to do more. He tells them to pray more. And so if you're here and you're already serving, you're already serving a lot, I'm not asking you to do more. I'm asking you to pray more. Join me in praying more. And if you aren't doing much and you're feeling a little uncomfortable, that that may just be the Holy Spirit bringing a little bit of conviction to say, you know, it's time to get in the game. It's time to get back in the game. It's time to begin serving. It's time to make sure that when people come through our door, and every week for the last six weeks, I have met a new family, and we give out bags, and we keep track of how many of those welcome bags that we give out, and it's been two or three every week since the beginning of September. God is entrusting us with people. He's sending people to us, and the question is, are they going to receive great service when they come here, or is it going to be kind of mediocre? Maybe we'll go back there. Maybe we'll try a few more. Or maybe we'll just not try any more churches. Maybe we'll just sleep in on Sundays. And so if you're not doing anything and you're feeling that, that little bit of uncomfortability, I just want to encourage you, like, stop making excuses. Stop looking for loopholes or, or being willing to do the bare minimum and choose to serve. Does love make excuses? Does love do the bare minimum? Did Jesus on the cross? No. 
And so if we're followers of his, then we'll serve like he served. We'll serve like Jesus. And I know that, that COVID is redefining the way that we live our lives, but I'm afraid sometimes COVID has become a wonderful excuse. I'm just not comfortable, Pastor Mark. I'm just not comfortable. And it's a, it's a tough one to respond to, but if you go to lunch after church and be served by somebody not wearing a mask, not wearing gloves, that have kids that are in the school system, then you can probably serve in your church. Or if we're too busy, maybe we need to change our priorities. Because if you're too busy to serve, then you're too busy. And maybe there's a shift that can take place in your priorities. Or maybe you're too busy because you're chasing a lifestyle that you weren't necessarily called to. And if you made changes in your lifestyle, then you could make changes in your schedule that would trickle down and and allow you to be able to serve like Jesus. Sometimes we even hear, well, I I don't want to miss my Sunday school class. I love that you love your Sunday school class. I really do. But maybe we just need to make a shift from a I can't because mentality to a I could if mentality. And so saying, well, I can't serve because of this or this or this. Say, well, I could if. I could if I was 10 or 15 minutes late to Sunday school once a month. Or I could if I missed Sunday school once a month to to help in kids' way or to do something else. Or I could if I reordered my schedule or changed my priorities or whatever the case may be. I believe the Spirit will lead us to the right place. Maybe I could if I scheduled it before my schedule fills up. So it's not like I'll serve if I have nothing else to do, but say, no, this is really important to me. I want to serve like Jesus. I want to serve my, my Lord and Savior. And so we schedule it onto our calendar so that it doesn't fall off our calendar, get crowded out of our calendar. And instead, when somebody says, would you like to go here or do this? You say, oh, I I can. I'm serving my church that weekend. I'm on the schedule to help that weekend. And so it's just a shift from I can't because to I could if. And so I invite you, as I always do, to respond in faith to what we've heard, what we've seen from God's Word, what we have experienced through the Spirit, Respond in faith to that. Respond in faith to what the Spirit might be saying to you today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the model and the example that you give us, Lord. We thank you that you came to serve, that you came to do for us what none of us could do for ourselves, that you came to meet our deepest need for salvation, for freedom from sin and death, Lord. And You also said it is for freedom that you have been set free. And we sang about that freedom today. We sang that we are free. Free. We're not free from serving, Lord. We're free to serve. We're free to reorient our lives around following you. And so I pray, Lord, that that will be our response and that we will be a people who respond in faith and who don't settle for I can't because but choose to say, you know, I could if, and then finish that sentence with you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.